Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, it's Kevin Hart. In this basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back all my game tickets. Plus, tickets for 23 of my biggest fans to cheer me on while I enjoy the game. I appreciate the support, people. Eat that pretzel. This will never get old. Use more napkins. Okay, this is starting to get old. Say the tagline. Cash back like a pro. With Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase, make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by J.P. Morgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Wednesday, everybody. We have an absolutely jam-packed show today. I told you guys coming into this playoff run, I thought it was going to be one of the best playoff runs in the history of the NBA because of the incredible amount of talent that we have in the league and the way that the matchups worked out. And it was something that I was 
very, very, very excited for. And as a result, when I was trying to put all my thoughts together, I was like, there's just way too much to get into here. And so I think the best way for us to do this tonight is to do it a little differently than we have been. We're going to bring my guy Carson on and we are going to get into the 10 biggest questions of the night. I think that will give us our best opportunity to touch all of our bases. So let's get Carson on and we're going to get right into it. Yeah, well, Jason, I think that the appropriate starting point here is with what I think has been maybe the most anticipated and a really interesting first round series, and that is Nets-Celtics. Celtics went up 2-0. Nets had a lead going into the fourth. They ended up squandering it, scored just 17 in that quarter. And KD had a really rough shooting night overall. Four of 17 from the field, also had six turnovers. Still managed 27 points because the guy made 18 free throws. But that's consecutive subpar shooting performances from him. He's under 32% in the series. So how much is he to blame for tonight's loss for Brooklyn? That's a loaded question because he's not to blame in the sense that the scheme from Boston was completely dis completely surrounding shutting KD down and shutting Kyrie down and making other guys make decisions. To KD's credit, all, all over the place over the last two days and all the talking head shows and everybody who's been breaking down this series, there's been a lot of pressure on KD to have an amazing bounce back game too. You heard talk of him having a playoff career high, 50-something, and you've heard people talking about hammering the over with his points in this game. And, you know, to KD's credit, when Boston came out from the, from the opening jump, they had a very clear strategy. We're not letting KD have that kind of night. The only time he ever was not facing a double team was when he had a live dribble out past the three-point line when he was crossing half court. But the second he put the ball on the floor and tried to get past anybody, here came the double. The second he came for a ball screen, here came the double. Anytime he was moving around off the ball, we're beating the hell out of him on every single off-ball action. We're grabbing him, we're holding him, all the same stuff that we talked about after game one. And I actually thought Kevin Durant was magnificent in the first half at not buying into that pressure to try to produce offensively as a scorer but just playing basketball and taking what the defense was giving him. And Jason Tatum actually really struggled in his first shift in the first quarter with that exact same problem. He was getting a very similar coverage from Brooklyn. There were four stars in this game, right? Kyrie, KD, Jason Tatum, and Jalen. And Kyrie, KD, and Jason Tatum were all facing that same coverage. Just crazy sellout double teams every time they got the ball with any threat near the basket. Basically, as soon as they would get inside the three-point line. And to start the game, Jason Tatum was pressing and forcing and driving into traffic and and just throwing stuff up at the rim instead of making the right reads. And that was and meanwhile Kevin Durant was just playing basketball and making those right reads. And as a result, the Nets got off to a really good start. But as the game progressed, Jason Tatum finally settled down and started taking and making the right reads as the as the game was progressing. And then in the second half, Boston look like so I would I would attribute it to two things because Kevin Durant absolutely fell apart in that second half. He's 0 for 8 from the field. He had, he had a bunch of sloppy turnovers. He's been mishandling the basketball in a bunch of situations, which is super uncharacteristic of a player as skilled as Kevin Durant is. But the way I look at it, there were two things that played a role there. One was the fact that when you're playing the role of the facilitator 
and you're making reads all game long. I think he only, in the first quarter and a half, he had only attempted four shots. So, like, in the as the game was progressing, his own rhythm was suffering as a result of his playmaking. This is just the, the reality of the way basketball works. One of the advantages of double-teaming a star and getting the balls at, ball out of his hands is he's going to struggle to get the rhythm when he does have opportunities to score. And I had a feeling that over the course of the game, Boston's defense would soften a little bit on him because of how well he was passing. And he actually did get some looks. But then what happens? Even the good looks you get are tough to make because you don't have your rhythm, because you haven't been getting easier looks to start the game. I complain about this with Laker fans all the time. They'd be like, oh, I can't believe another guard came in here and shot the lights out again. And it's like, he did because they let him get comfortable at the start of the game. So he felt confident, he felt in his rhythm, and he was knocking all his shots down. And the exact opposite thing was cap happening to Kevin Durant. And then the second part of it, you got to credit Boston's defense. When they are roughing up Kevin Durant to that extent, it makes it so that when he gets to those spots, he's fatigued. Now, all of a sudden, <clears throat> you're you're not getting as much as you're ordinarily accustomed to getting on those jump shots. You also start to kind of feel ghost pressure, right? Like Kevin Durant is seven feet tall and he's getting to those spots. But when you're constantly in this swarm of bodies, even when you get to your spots and you're raising up, it's in the back of your mind that maybe Tatum's coming from behind you to try to take the ball away or that someone you might not have seen is coming. Because like one of the things that was happening with KD is he'd on the catch, Tatum would gamble around his body like if he caught the ball on the post somewhere. Tatum would gamble around his body and try to knock the ball away and then KD would turn and then as soon as he would turn, like there'd be Al Horford right on it. Like they were swarming him everywhere on the floor. So you've got to give Al Horford a little bit of credit or excuse me, the, the Celtics defense in general, a little bit of credit for how much they disrupted, disrupted him, and it was by design. And so, you know, if you're, if you're Boston and you're sitting in the locker room after the game and you're watching some film, the way you got to look at it is our game plan was to take Kevin Durant out of this game. He beat us with the pass in the first half, and then he fell apart in the second half. And that's the way it's going to go in a lot of cases. You know, this is, you know, I, to be clear, I still think Kevin Durant's the best player in the world right now. I have the utmost respect for him and what he brings to the table on both ends of the floor. But from 2012 to 2020, no matter how many times someone would bring up another name, whether it was KD in 2014 or whether it was Steph from 2015 to 2016 or KD again in 2017, 2018, or if it was Ka uh, Kawhi Leonard in 2019, every time I'd always step up and I'd be like, hey guys, let's chill out a little bit. These guys aren't as good as LeBron is. And one of the reasons why is because LeBron is essentially impervious to the type of game that Kevin Durant had tonight. Because if you try to rough him, him, him up, up the, off the ball, he's going to win that matchup. There's never been, not since the Pistons in 2007, have you seen a team kind of successfully rough LeBron up with physicality. That's a thing. That's a that's a situation that he thrives in. And then in addition to that, and this is something you saw with all the stars today, with Kyrie, with Jason Tatum, and with Kevin Durant, they're wired as scorers, but they've progressed as playmakers enough in their career that they do start to make reads that are there because they're they're improving in those areas of their game. But their natural identity as a basketball player defaults to scoring. And so they're going to go off that script often, and they're going to try to do what they like to do. LeBron's the exact opposite. That's why he's received criticism in his career for not taking certain shots. In that environment, 
in that crazy environment with that 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 over aggressive defense, LeBron will persistently make the right read every single time down the floor to a fault sometimes to the point where he won't take advantage enough of scoring opportunities. And and, and I, but you have to take every time a defense is aggressive, there is an opening somewhere on the floor, and you have to take advantage of that. That's why I've been preaching about that with Nikola Vucevic in this Bucks Bulls series. Like if they're going to sit and drop coverage all game long and take away the paint, you have to take threes. You have to do something to shoot them out of that coverage. And you saw that tonight a lot with KD and Tatum in particular. They would get off script and they would try to do their own thing even though there were opportunities there to continue to make the defense pay. And that's that's one of those situations that I hope people in retrospect have appreciation for why LeBron James has been so dominant and consistent as a playoff player in his career because it centers around that. The ability to thrive in the physical the physical environments, the ability to consistently make defenses pay for being over aggressive and and this is the crucial part, he can do the KD and Kyrie stuff too. He can he has high level shot making and he's done it on the biggest stages time and time again. That's why I always was drawn to him. It's why I thought he was the best player. Katie's the best player now, but that's one of the shortcomings in his game and that's why you saw that you saw that pop up tonight and become a problem in that second half. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I think this is a loaded question and it's a difficult one to answer. And I think you're absolutely right about how stellar the Celtics were defensively on KD and how much of a priority he was. And really outside of the free throws, there wasn't really an easy look on the table for him tonight. And he's obviously, you know, an all-time difficult shot maker, so you expect some more of those to fall. But there's lots of situations where he's facing multiple defenders and he is still trying to get that shot up. So I think the one component here in which you can say, yes, as tough as that matchup was, and part of it is just shots not falling, where he does probably need to be held accountable, is just from the perspective of you're not going to get many offensive games like this from the Nets role players. I mean, Bruce Brown was tremendous with 23 on 8 of 12. Seth was pretty good tonight with 16. Dragic had another really productive game off the bench with 18 on 8 of 14 shooting. So, yes, that's interrelated, with all the attention that KD is drawing, and obviously he and Kyrie are the only reason the Nets are the basketball team they are to begin with, but when you have a chance like that, you think a couple more of those tough shots have probably got to go because it's Kevin Durant that we're talking about, and that's just the expectation. Yeah, Kevin Durant and Kyrie combined for one made field goal in the second half. That can't happen. Now, regardless of how you feel about Boston's defense, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a second, regardless of how you feel about that, they simply have to be better. And I actually thought KD got a handful of decent looks in that second half that just weren't even close, leaving him short, missing Mm -hmm. left and right. And again, it was just a weird night. It was a weird night on that front. Both guys just had really, really rough nights. Mention it. We gave KD's numbers. Kyrie, 10 points on 4 of 13 shooting. So overall, would you say that tonight was more about bad offense from the Nets or good defense from the Celtics? I thought it was good defense from the Celtics. We're going to talk more about, I mean, outside outside of the shot making, the shot making from KD and Kyrie, the turnovers, the mishandling the basketball, that's stuff they just have to get better about. But that's not a game plan thing. That's not something you can go and like, let's watch tape and figure out how we can start. No, you just have to make those shots. That's a short, that, that's just something that they have to be better about right, so I, I look at it more as putting the onus and the and the credit on Boston for disrupting them to that extent. Like, how many times have you seen Kevin Durant shoot a pull up jump shot in his career and be blocked? 
It's happened, I think, at least twice in this series, both from Jason Tatum. Like, that's just a relentless pursuit from Tatum. On a lot of these possessions, KD's coming over a ball screen or something and getting separation from Tatum and then going up into his shot, but Tatum's applying what's called back pressure, like flying over the top of the screen, knowing you're a bit out of the play, but that KD eventually is going to have to slow down to get up into his shot, and that's your opportunity to recover and make a defensive play, and he did that a bunch tonight. This is a really, really interesting situation that's happening in the NBA. And I started to pick up on this just a little bit back in that Phoenix Suns Lakers series last year in the first round. I started to notice that teams were starting to figure out because of the overall lineup speed as the game has changed and teams have gone with more wings and fewer bigs and prioritized speed and ball handling, every team has become a lot faster. And as a result, they're able to cover more ground, which has allowed them to pressure stars more, not just in double teams, not just in traps, but also in help side defense. And I noticed in that Lakers-Sun series, like every time LeBron had the ball, there were just three bodies kind of positioned in his driving lanes. You're seeing that with Giannis Antetokounmpo in this series with the Bulls. You're seeing it with KD and Kyrie. You're seeing it even with Jason Tatum. The league is dangerously close to figuring out how to stop superstar players with these double teams. Jason Tatum had a really rough night. He also made some big shots at the end, to his credit. He also, I thought KD, Kyrie, and Jason Tatum all made big plays as playmakers, but you're, the league is starting to figure out how to disrupt these stars. And I think the natural counter, and this will be a really interesting thing over the next couple years, is you're going to have to play guys like Patty Mills and Seth Curry. and Because the reason why this series is close, even though the Celtics' defense is so, so, so much better than Brooklyn's, is because Brooklyn is playing guys off of KD and Kyrie that can punish you. You just mentioned it, Carson. When KD and Kyrie had this rough night... It came with Curry making big plays. It came with Patty Mills making a big shot. It came with Bruce Brown having a big night. Even Andre Drummond had some moments attacking out of the post, right? So like you're seeing that the value now of having skilled basketball players around your stars because defenses are figuring out we have the foot speed now to effectively double team a star and rotate out of it and not give up wide open looks anymore. That's a really interesting conundrum. And I'm genuinely curious over the course of the next three, four years at how the, because the league always adapts to itself. You know, a big offensive change happens. Here comes the defense catching up. A big defensive change happens. Here comes the offense catching up. I'm really, really curious to see over the next couple of years how this changes. Because that game tonight was unlike any basketball game I've ever seen. How many times have you seen all of the stars suck? And there was one star that did well, and it was Jalen Brown because he was in single coverage all night. So, like, that's a really interesting conundrum, and I'm curious to see how it affects basketball over the coming years. So, now that the Nets are sitting here and they're down 0-2 and they seem to just continue to underachieve what expectations were, certainly when this duo was put together on paper ahead of last year or, you know, when Katie was actually able to play basketball last year for the first time. Steve Nash is catching a lot of heat. Do you think that's fair or unfair? So I've seen this, and I and I disagree. I I I get it. I get that the the Nets look like a pickup game offense, but like I think it's a little bit short sighted to think that running a set or running sets more frequently is going to solve this problem. And this is not a take that I 
have recently had. I've been telling you guys this forever. All of you guys that are listening that have listened to my show over the last couple of years, I've always said that the value of sets becomes massively diminished in the postseason. And the reason why is physicality and switching. That's why I never cared that the Lakers were a bad half-court offense in the regular season. Regular season half-court offenses always are going to favor the teams that run sets really well. But in the postseason, it becomes brute force. Look at the way Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are having trouble navigating off-ball and off-ball screens. Like, for instance, when they have Kevin Durant underneath the basket and he's being guarded by Jason Tatum, and they have Nick Claxton come down to set a pin-down screen on Kevin Durant, what happens? You have Jason Tatum hugging Kevin Durant, literally, and he's got to fight him off. Then as soon as he comes off of that screen, here's Grant Williams or Al Horford, whoever it is that's on Nick Claxton, he grabs KD too. There's a, I shared a clip. You can see it on my, on my Twitter feed. You guys can see the specific play. Literally, now KD is fighting through a moving, hugging, whatever, like, cut uh, check from from Grant Williams before he ever gets up to get the basketball. Like that's what it's like trying to run actions in the postseason. It's not. I'm not saying that you can't do that to some extent, but like the reality of the way postseason basketball works is it's such a shit show off the ball with the physicality that sets don't work. Not to mention with scouting that if you have a set that's working, by the time you get to the game, the next game in the series, all of a sudden it won't. So like for me. Where where Steve Nash has to figure this out is he's got to figure out floor positioning, where guys have to be on the floor so that when KD gets doubled, so that when Kyrie gets doubled, you can make quick decisions out of it and easily compromise the defense. So it's less about sets and more about floor positioning, finding spots on the floor that a guy can be a threat so that when Ky Kevin Durant or Kyrie makes an easy pass out of the double team, it's a quick, you know, bang, bang read to get an easy shot out of it. That That is Steve Nash's job over the course of the next few games of this series. I don't think it has anything to do with running set. So I disagree with some of the criticism that's been thrown his way there. I think the Nash dynamic is an interesting one because I totally agree with your fundamental point there. And I would argue that that's a lot more true even when you're talking about the devaluing of sets when you have two of the greatest isolation shot makers of all time. And it's like, yeah, you entrust your best players with the keys to just go make plays and create your offense consistently. I will say, though, I don't know that there's much that I think Nash does exceptionally well as a coach. I think that <laughs> it's obviously tough to get inside like any team's culture, but there's been a lot of weird stuff going around the Nets. And sure, he has had to balance some of the wackiest personalities the league has. And yeah, they've been able to reach a higher level defensively in the playoffs when it matters most, but I don't know how much to attribute that to him versus just the players being more engaged. I would lean towards the latter. So like, what do you think on that front? Like, I agree with you in that he's not actively, you know, hurting them in terms of offensive scheme and whatnot. But like, do you think Steve Nash is a good coach? It's hard to say, man. He's got a really tough job. But I've always, I've always thought that specifically with veteran teams that are laid in with superstars, it's primarily more important for a coach to coach up the defensive end of the floor. This has always been the way that I've felt. Like you can't bring a, a, a like a super smart, young, you know, ambitious, offensive-minded coach that loves to run sweet motion offense and and put him in a room with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Those guys are going to shrug that dude out of the room. You know, like that that's just not a, a realistic approach. Like I feel like Nash's job is more to manage personalities, manage late games to 
situations like timeouts and and drawing up specific sets for very specific scenarios at the end of game and then the and then the defensive end of the floor and I'll give you guys a very quick example like like and this is this is an example of a set that works really well in the postseason if take advantage of where the defense is throwing extra attention in game one in the second to last possession Ime Yudoka knew that the 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 Nets were overplaying Tatum and doubling him on every single screen. So they had Tatum run way off to the left wing. We've talked about this play a few times on the show. They had Tatum run way off to the left side of the wing, and then they had Al Horford come up and set a screen for him, an off-ball screen, and Nick Claxton and Kevin Durant both followed him up there. And as a result, the paint was completely vacated, and Jalen Brown had an easy attack to the basket, and only Goran Dragic was there on the back line. Those are the kinds of things that the Nets have to figure out now. I would do stuff like have... Katie and Kyrie run off ball action out of sight, out of mind and have opportunities for Seth Curry and Patty Mills to go to work or Goran Dragic to go to work, do something to try to punish the Celtics for their over-aggressive defense. But it's this is an impossible job, guys. It is, it is a really, really difficult job with these brute force offensive teams that rely on superstars. The coaches are more like figureheads than they are actually strategists. You know what I mean? Like a guy like Nick Nurse has a much bigger role within the Raptors and their success than a guy like Steve Steve Nash does for for this Brooklyn team. Yeah, I think that's unequivocally. I just do think the interesting part is when you highlight his fundamental responsibilities, I just don't know that he's done those things particularly well. Like personality management, <laughs> you know, his players actively hated each other. Like James Harden stopped. That's, that's a good to play point, basketball. Carson. You know, Kyrie he didn't play a majority of the games this year and obviously is constantly demonstrating some level of discontent. So I think that you are absolutely right and that it is ultimately kind of a figurehead position and it's just about like, do the guys like him? Are they comfortable with him there? And as long as that remains the case with Katie and Kyrie, Steve Nash will be in Brooklyn. But I don't think he's like an actively limiting factor. I just kind of shrug and, and I'm not really He, he doesn't have Steve the power Nash. to do anything either. That's the issue. Like he's yeah, not Greg Popovich. It's such a weird dynamic. He doesn't like have said. the power over the players. Yeah. It's a very, very strange dynamic. I think, I mean, you make a fair point when you say it kind of is an impossible job. It's very strange and a very strange first head coaching job too. Okay, so here that we are now with the Nets down 2-0. Is there any chance they come back in this series? There's a chance, but I'm off them. I picked the Nets in seven. I'm off that pick. I think Boston's going to win this series probably in five games. And I think Boston's going to win the championship. I'm all in. I'm all in on Boston. This is the best defensive team I have ever seen. I think they're better than the Toronto defensive team in 2019 because that defensive team relied a little bit too much on small guards. Guys like Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet. Um, obviously, I think you know Kawhi Leonard is the better defensive player than anybody on either of those two teams. But just in general, this is the best defensive team I've ever seen. And you're seeing like some of the postseason reps that all of these guys have had in Boston over the years. It's showing in their confidence. Like Jalen Brown has been amazing in these two games. And when you look at the predicament that Boston was in tonight in that fourth quarter, especially when when Brooklyn took that lead there uh, in that game, like there's a ton of pressure there. And there's a lot of reasons for Jalen Brown and his specific role to get discouraged and to shrink from that moment. And he like grabbed that game and just took it home. 
And and even Jason Tatum made a bunch of huge plays at the end of the game. He had an awesome little like push shot in the lane, and he had a like a jab step three that he made at the end of the shot clock there at the end. Like these guys are not scared of these moments. They've gone toe to toe with LeBron freaking James in a game seven of the conference finals when they were rookies. They made it to the conference finals in the bubble. These these guys have played in big game after big game. I I'm I would have picked Phoenix to win the title, but I'm terrified of this brand uh, this Devin Booker hamstring injury. I think this ha- uh, this hamstring thing is super finicky. Hamstrings are super super easy to re-injure. This Pelicans team is way better than a traditional eight seed, and then they got to go through Luca in the next round. I'm not counting the Suns out. Let me be clear there, but I'm changing my pick to win the title. I think. I, we're we're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but I don't think I don't think any either of the Bucks or the the Bulls could beat this Boston team. This Boston team has like 2004 Pistons energy mixed with like a player that is ascending into flat out superstardom and Jason Tatum and a bunch of guys that aren't scared and that play their roles perfectly. This Celtics team, I think, is the best team in the NBA, and I think they're going to win the title this year. That's obviously super high praise, and I will say, I mean, they continue to look exceptional, and I thought they would be more impacted by the Robert Williams loss and just his vertical spacing offensively, having that dynamic interior athlete, how efficient he was, and then obviously defensively, such an exceptional rim protector, but defensively, they haven't lost a step. They just keep chugging along, so are you just like completely moved on from that, and like how impressive is that, that here they are having lost a guy who felt really important to what they were doing for so much of the year. And you're saying they're your title favorite. He still is important. It's the, and this is a credit to Al Horford. Like Al Horford has been unfreaking believable in these first two games in huge minutes. And so Mm -hmm. like the silver lining for Horford is the way you got to look at it. If you're him is like Rob's coming. And when he gets here, I'll be able to play fewer minutes and devote my energy in a little bit of these shorter bursts, right? But he is emptying the freaking tank for this series. And it's and it's completely making up for the Robert Williams injury at this point. His perimeter shooting has been a, a dynamic component of the way that uh, it's a it's punishing Brooklyn for helping. His he's got like some of the best hands defensively in in help defense that you'll ever see. Like he doesn't even have to reach up to contest. He's just really good at poking the ball free from guys down low. Al Horford has been the reason that Rob Williams loss has not hurt the Celtics yet. And, and, and they, uh, he played some three on three today and he's been progressing. Well, they're not even counting him out necessarily in this series. Although I doubt they'll play him now that I think they're going to control Brooklyn, but like th- th- that, I, I, I put a I put the vast majority of that credit on Al Horford. He's just been an absolute monster. But yeah, I, I I've seen enough. Like I you gotta you gotta pay attention to what's in front of your eyes. Kevin Durant did not Kevin Durant didn't shrink from the moment tonight. KD was ready for that game. KD was ready to put his imprint on that game. What happened was the Celtics would not allow it to happen. How many defenses in NBA history can do that? We're talking you know, 2004 Pistons on Shaq and Kobe. We're talking, you know, 2019 Raptors on Steph Curry. But they're just, there aren't that many examples in NBA history of a of a defense completely disrupting a star like this. And it's a five-man effort, and it's not criticism of Kevin Durant. Like I said, I think he's the best player in the world. Boston has just shut his ass down. And it is, it is, it is just 
you have to pay attention to what your eyes are seeing. What we're seeing right now is all-time defensive greatness. And and that that carries teams in the playoffs. And I'm concerned about Boston's half-court offense a little bit, but like I keep saying, they have margin for error, and their margin for error is in their defense. And if Jalen Brown's going to play like this, and if Jason Tatum's going to keep playing like this, it doesn't matter. They're just going to beat everybody. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Warm weather brings many outdoor activities. Happy hours after work, weekend hikes, pool parties, and family barbecues. With all that time spent in the sun, we're often not thinking about what it's doing to our hair. Those rays can seriously affect your scalp and hair, making right now the perfect time to start taking Nutrafol to help keep your hair healthy this summer. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology, life stage, and lifestyle factors. Physician formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole body health. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Get results you can run your fingers through. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N U T. R-A-F-O-L dot com, promo code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code HOOPS. Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, Come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. It's something that I've always been a big believer in. When Usually when you try to take on a project that you don't know how to do, it ends up just being a bigger headache as you try to learn and then you end up making mistakes and it ends up just not being worth it. Not only can a professional get the job done more efficiently, but you're also supporting local businesses in your area. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job is done well. With 29 years of experience, combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects easy. Angie has cost guides to tell you what others have paid for similar projects both nationally and in your area. The app is free and easy to use. We all know the difficulties that can come with home projects. Angie makes tackling your project as simple as possible from start to finish. Turn to Angie with confidence, even for major renovations or emergency repairs. Are you renting? Even renters can come to Angie for moving, installations, and cleaning. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com or download the app today. Yeah, I mean, I think you've said it. The Celtics have undeniably been extremely impressive. And 
There's been another team out east that has looked pretty darn good and took a 3-0 advantage today. Definitely the tightest game of the series thus far by a lot. But the Sixers snuck out with one in Toronto on a really remarkable, not quite buzzer beater. I think there was .7 seconds left, but turnaround three from Joel Embiid off an inbound. He finished the day with 33. How the hell did he get that shot off? (laughs) Well, the way that he got the shot off specifically was the fact that Joel Embiid is so good at drawing fouls that guys are paranoid to reach in or to contest jump shots. And so there's kind of like a philosophy with Embiid. You just let him shoot and you hope for the best. And he hasn't been the most efficient jump shooter in the world overall. Like his field goal percentage is below 50%, which is really unusual for a for a center like him, right? So, but as a result, like that little freedom that he gets from guys being paranoid about fouling him, he can turn around and shoot. But that in combination with his size is what allowed him to get the shot off. I got I to gotta say, that bit of shot making from Joel Embiid uh, just in general, d- down the stretch of that game, was was one of those like career highlight type of moments. Like when we look back at LeBron's career, and you think about the 2007 Pistons game, and you think about the 2009 Orlando Magic game, the 2012 Boston Celtics game, the 2013 San Antonio Spurs game. Guys, there's a whole lot of those games, but you think about those games, they're like these iconic NBA history moments that define LeBron's legacy, and. And Joe LMP doesn't have a lot of those games yet. And this was his first one. And, you know, when you look at what happened down the stretch of that game, they were getting absolutely nothing out of James Harden. He got a weird, uh, I mean, down the stretch at least. He had an okay game over the course of the game. But he, he James Harden wasn't giving you anything offensively other than a, a BS foul call down the stretch at the baseline. You, you weren't getting a ton out of Tyrese Maxey. You weren't getting a ton out of Georges Niang wasn't hitting his shots down the stretch. I'm specifically talking about crunch time. And you had a little bit out of Tyrese Maxey. Like Tyrese Maxey had a really nice play at the end of regulation where he attacked a closeout out of the right corner and hit a one-dribble pull-up along the baseline. That was massive. He had two huge shots in OT at a a, a, a little uh, reverse layup right at the start of OT where he beat Fred Van Vliet to the basket with just a blur of speed. And then he had another play later in overtime where he made a really, really nice floater off the glass. But for the most part, they, the Sixers weren't getting anything out of anybody else offensively. And when Embiid was close to the basket, just like Nick Nurse has been doing all series, the, the Raptors were throwing the kitchen sink at him. And he was struggling a little bit with that, at least within the traffic. And the game really came down to rescue shots. Shots at the end of the shot clock that save your team. And it started with a, a couple of, of little jab step pull-ups that he made in the late fourth quarter. Then there was like that late shot clock towards the end of the fourth quarter. He had a late shot clock three along the left wing where he was like fading away. Shot clock winding down, just just chucked it up while falling backwards and just hit nothing but the bottom of the net. And then you get into the play right before the end of regulation as the buzzer was sounding. Same spot on the floor, gets a great look, and he left it just short. It was dead on straight. When it hit the rim, I immediately started thinking about the Game 7 Kawhi shot that was dead on straight, hit the front of the rim, went right up in the air, and bounced on the rim a bunch of times and went in. I was like, oh, is this the one? And it just ended up landing short. But Joel Embiid had sent the game to OT effectively with three rescue shots in regulation. 
And then you go into the fourth quarter, or excuse me, in OT, he had a move on OG Ananobi at the high post that was amazing. It literally looked like Kyrie Irving. He did like a hard dribble pivot spin, like didn't even get his body all the way turned around before he shot it and put it in the net. I I tweeted it out the clip because I was like, what the hell are we even watching here? I just watched like a damn near 300 pound, seven foot tall center hit a Kyrie Irving move in the middle of the lane over one of the best wing defenders that we have in the league at OG Ananobi. And then at the end of the game, once again, you're drawing up a timeout. There's two seconds left. And you just got a seven-foot guy on the floor that everyone's scared to foul that that he can turn around and shoot off the wing. And he and he knocked it down. And what a cool moment and the first iconic moment of Joel Embiid's playoff career. Now, it, it remains to be seen that the, the Sixers still have some issues overall. You know, I I was wrong about this series. And I was actually, before the game even went to OT, I was texting the you guys, the producers. I was like, I was like, I'm off this this Raptors team. And there were a couple of things that I highly underestimated. You know, my whole theory for this series and the Raptors having a chance had to do with the fact that they could get stops and get out in transition. Because in the half court, we all knew their offense would really struggle. And you saw their half court offense was disastrously bad down the stretch of that game at home. And honestly, they had some rescue shots on their end that carried them when their offense fell apart. Gary Trent hit some tough ones. You had, uh, I think OG Ananobi hit a huge three in the left corner. There were a bunch of like big time shots that guys hit when really they weren't able to get anything. And I think the loss of Scotty Barnes ended up being really, really hurtful for this specific Raptors team because the problem was, was when, when Philly switched Joel Embiid onto Pascal Siakam and Pascal Siakam lost confidence in his jump shot when those two things happened and then Pascal suddenly realized that he couldn't drive by Embiid because Embiid was giving him enough space that he could compensate for the lack of speed and stay in front of him and turn Pascal into a jump shooter and then simultaneously uh, Fred Van Vliet completely fell apart with his confidence in his jump shot everything fell apart offensively and what Scotty Barnes has been for the Raptors all season has been just that other release valve because he's got a really good hook shot in the lane and he's got a good handle and he's huge. And so they would just go to him and you can't, if you're guarding Pascal Siakam with Joel Embiid, then that means you don't have another big body, another big enough body to put on Scotty Barnes. And and so Scotty Barnes being out of the series really hurt them. I disagreed with some of the strategy things that, that Nick Nurse did, but at the end of the day, I was just flat out wrong. The Sixers team was better than I expected them to be. Even, even Joel Embiid within the chaos of the way Toronto was swarming him. He had 33 and 13 tonight on the road in Toronto because his shot making was so magnificent that the crazy defense that Toronto was throwing his way just simply didn't matter. So that that's a credit to him. And like I think one of the interesting kind of subplots moving forward for Philly is Tyrese Maxey. He's just better than James Harden right now. James Harden's playmaking is is his biggest asset that he brings to this team. He's still very important. Though when push comes to shove, Tyrese Maxey can create his own shot with his speed getting to the rim, and James Harden just can't right now. And so, But Tyrese Maxey's been awesome. You, When you're talking about the, the hierarchy of this series and you're ranking players, if you wanted Toronto to win, the way it had to go was it had to be Embiid is the best player in the series, 
And then either Siakam or Van Vliet is the second best player in the series. And then, you know, James Harden somewhere down like three or four. And then guys like Scotty Barnes and the other one of the Siakam Van Vliet trio or duo is in there somewhere. And then you get to a Tyrese Maxey. But no, Tyrese Maxey has been hands down the second best player in the series. And that that little influx of talent changed the dynamic of the series. And so, yeah, like I, 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 It'll be interesting to see how it, it it amounts to them as the playoff run continues. But they, they, I was flat out wrong about this series. Philly's better than I thought they were, and they took it to Toronto, and that was a really, really impressive win on the road there. So are you buying the Sixers as legit contenders then? I, no. The, the thing is, is as good as... As good as they've looked in this matchup, and they have a very good draw moving forward, right? Because they're going to end up catching Miami in the next round, and I think Miami is a pretty flawed half-court offense team as well. That'll be a really interesting dynamic there. They're better than Toronto, but they have some similar half-court offense issues that have plagued them all year, even in the regular season. They're just a they're a much better defensive team, and they'll be able to throw some defensive things at Embiid and Harden that Toronto could not, particularly Bam Adebayo and the dynamic that he brings as a guy that might be able to guard Joel Embiid in single coverage. So that's like an interesting dynamic there. But they have an, they have an easy path. They're going to probably make it to the conference finals. But like I was talking about earlier, I still think Boston's the best team in the league. Look at, look at that swarming defense that Boston used tonight. That's, that's going to have a lot of success against Philly. Now, the one dynamic that Philly brings that'll be interesting is like I was talking about with Seth Curry and with Patty Mills, when you're a, a crazy aggressive defense, it's your off-ball players that bring more advantage, right? And Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey certainly bring that to the table. The, di- the different dynamic is though, to, uh, Boston absolutely had to double KD and absolutely had to double Kyrie because they couldn't guard those guys in single coverage. They won't have to double James Harden. They won't have to double Tyrese Maxey. So they'll only have to double Joel Embiid, which I think will free them up to play a little bit more traditional defense. And in that regard, I think they'll have more success. So I'd still pick Boston. Philly definitely has more of a puncher's chance than I originally expected. And that was just me and probably, and I'll be honest with you, it's a little bit of bias there. I hate this freaking team, man. I hate the way they play. I hate the foul grifting. It was a pleasure to watch Joel Embiid play real basketball down the stretch of that game. That that what that's what I that's when I'm a Joel Embiid fan is when he's just making shots like a basketball player instead of doing the janky stuff. But so my bias I think got in the way a little bit there, but I'm still going with Boston. You mentioned how great Maxi has been, and I mean obviously this series he's more than thirty a game, which is unsustainable production. But post All Star break he was nineteen a game on better than sixty five percent true shooting. Really a remarkable scoring skill set overall. So, like, if he continues to play at this level, does that raise your confidence in Philly? Or beyond that, is any one thing that you can think of that they could really do or prove to you where you would maybe elevate them to that legitimate contender status? (laughs) Oh, that's a really good question, Carson. In order to elevate them to that status... I think I would have to see a little bit more out of James Harden because the issue with Tyrese Maxey is he's faster than everybody on Toronto right now. And Toronto is sloppy in a bunch of different ways because they're young, right? And 
they're going to run into some teams like Boston and Milwaukee or Boston and Miami that are more grown up type of basketball teams. And with that specific predicament, I don't think I, I think it's going to I think they're going to need James Harden to to be a a better perimeter player than he has been. I I don't know, man. That's that's a really good question. I think I think if Joel Embiid's going to make jump shots like this too, that's another wrinkle. Kind of like Anthony Davis in the 2020 bubble with the Lakers. Anthony Davis suddenly just transitioning into a shot maker because going into that bubble, the fear was the Lakers half-court offense. Same type of problem, right? And since James Harden came to Philly, their offense has not been great overall. And so it's kind of a similar type of concern. But then there was just this random ascendance of, of Anthony Davis into a Kevin Durant-esque high-post jump shooter. And it kind of became yeah. like a release valve for the Lakers, right? And so if that happens with Joel Embiid and he shoots perimeter jump shots like this, that could be another wrinkle that elevates Philly to that status. But I don't know, man. Boston Boston looks like a once-in-a-generation type of, of mix of basketball ability that I think is such a bad matchup for everybody around the league that I I, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I haven't seen anything like what I saw from Boston tonight. And I've been watching a lot of basketball over the last couple decades. So I... I I've, I don't know. I don't know that Philly's capable of getting to that level. All right. Let's touch on another team that has certainly been thrown into that tier of contenders out East. And you have harped on some of their issues, particularly defensively throughout the regular season. And that's the Milwaukee Bucks, who I think a lot of people expected to really cruise against the Bulls team that struggled for so much of the second half of the year. Game one was ugly. They dropped game two, 114-110. And just to pour some salt in the wound, Coach Bud says that Chris Middleton, he has been told, has an MCL sprain and they will get an MRI tomorrow. So given all that context, are the Bucks in trouble, Jason? Yeah, yes, they were in trouble before that injury. <laughs> I saw Chris Middleton go off to the locker room and I was worried about what specifically had happened. But that's mm -hmm. extremely concerning because they're having problems on both ends with him. You know, <clears throat> there's an old standing NBA rule. And that rule is, if you're not a top 10 defense by defensive rating, so points allowed per 100 possessions, you don't win the title. Unless you have an absolutely overwhelming talent advantage. So we're talking KD, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, Andre Iguodala, or prime Shaquille O'Neal and prime Kobe Bryant or Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler, like at the top of their games with MJ out of the league. Like there, there, there are, is a, there are very rare circumstances where you can be an exception to that rule. But generally speaking, that's the, that's the, that's the rule. If you don't crack the top 10 in defensive rating in the regular season, you don't win the title because that, that defensive rating in the regular season, to me, is the best indicator of your commitment to establishing defensive habits. And when your back is against the wall, when things, when the shit starts to hit the fan, you lean back on your habits. Your identity as a basketball team is the one thing you can rely on when everything goes south. And so, if you don't have that defensive set of habits established, you're going to find yourself with your back against the wall and nothing to fall back on. And so we're going to, they've been bad on both ends of the floor. We'll talk about the offense here in just a second. But their defense has not been good. And it's jarring to watch that Boston defense. 
in the way that they disrupt everybody all over the floor, the way they fly around in rotations, the way that they don't rely on stupid vintage coverages like drop coverages. The Boston only runs a drop coverage with Daniel Tice on the floor because they don't want to have him in switches against guys like Kyrie and Steph, against guys like Kyrie and Kevin Durant, right? But they're doing they're doing a ton of switching. They're they they're packing the paint, but they're rotating around on the back end. Then you look at Milwaukee. And it's a very stubborn, traditional approach to uh, to offense. Something that we've talked about incessantly over the course of this year. Or to defense, excuse me. They're packing the paint for the sake of giving away those wide-open jump shots. And so what happened all freaking night tonight? It was a combination of Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan getting to their spots and making shots. Carson, we talked about this a lot after game one of this series. DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine and Nikola Vucevic all had absolute nightmare game ones as shot makers. Absolute nightmare game ones. And they were right there. A couple of possessions away from winning that game. And they did it with their defense, which we'll talk about in a second. But in this game, suddenly, with pretty much the same strategy, they didn't even do as many pick and pops with Nikola Vucevic as I wanted. And when they did, every time they got a wide open shot, I, I simply don't understand why they don't just do that incessantly to punish the Bucks for having uh, Lopez and, and, and Giannis camp around the basket. The one run that the Bucks went on in this game was late third quarter. And it was because they switched Giannis onto Nikola Vucevic and started running a drop coverage with Giannis under the basket. And he was blocking everything. And when he was getting blocks, he was getting out in transition. And so when teams play into uh, Milwaukee's defense's strengths, which is just driving into the teeth of the defense for no reason, they have success. But outside of that specific uh, um, situation, when they have teams that successfully drive and kick and hit shooters on the wing, and when they have guys that get to their jump shots in the mid-range, they have a ton of success. And suddenly the Bucs can't get stops. And so that takes me to the offensive end of the floor from Milwaukee, because this is the this is the conundrum that has surrounded this team incessantly over the course of the last few years. For whatever reason, it worked out in last year's postseason run, in large part because Chris Middleton was fantastic and Giannis went extra nuclear, and their defense was better. So they weren't living in the half court all the time. But they have consistently struggled relative to some of the better teams in the league at half-court scoring. Because Chris Middleton, as good of a three-level scorer as he is, is not a superstar. Because Drew Holiday, as good of a scoring guard as he is, is not a superstar. And Giannis, for being the absolute superstar, top tier, on the same level as LeBron and KD as he is, still not a fantastic half-court initiator, right? And so when they get in those settings, they struggle. In game one, they won. But the dirty little secret there is the Bulls were missing a bunch of shots they normally make. And the reality was, is I think they only had 99 points in that game. So they were struggling to score. And you saw that again tonight. The Bucks could not get stops because Chicago was getting everything they wanted on offense. As a result, Chicago was consistently set on defense, with exception of that run in the third quarter that Milwaukee went on when they were getting out in transition, and Giannis was just putting his head down and going to the rim every single time in transition. Outside of that, they were stuck in the half court, and when they were, they were struggling to create shots. And that's persistently going to be an issue for them. I keep telling you guys that my biggest thing that I watch with Giannis is his ability to playmake, his ability to drive into the teeth of the defense and make passes consistently. Because I've never cared about his ability to knock down a jump shot outside of maybe just getting some rest in the middle of the game by settling for the sake of saving your legs. But I've never cared about that specific skill. I've always cared about just, can he make reads? Can you loosen up the defense by making passes? And he's okay at that. He's okay. But he's not good enough to be that perimeter 
that initiate that that you know half court surgeon, right? And that and that that limitation without a bona fide second superstar next to Giannis is what kind of limits the Bucks in the half court. It always has, which wasn't a problem last year because they were so freaking good defensively. Now they are not. And as a result, they can't get enough stops to buy them the margin for error that they need to succeed in the half court. This is why I was so terrified about the prospect of Giannis ending up in Dallas with Luka. Because when you put somebody with Giannis that perfectly complements his weaknesses, that also has the superstar moxie, that, that would have been an unbeatable combo. There was nothing anybody in the league could have done with that duo. We were, we were very fortunate as basketball fans for the sake of parody that that did not happen. But instead, there is a lot of onus on Giannis to be that, that half-court creator. The Bucks' defense isn't good enough to buy them that margin for error, and I think they're going to get beat. This Bulls, suddenly this series looks very much up in the air. I'm still picking Milwaukee, but it's a lot closer than it looks. So you've touched on the brilliance of the Celtics defense. You've touched on some of the half court limitations with Giannis as that lead initiator. If they do get to that Boston matchup, how does Giannis fare in that matchup? So when I came to terms with the reality of the situation tonight, which is that Boston is going to beat me, uh, uh, Brooklyn. And this was before I saw Chicago upset Milwaukee today. But I do still think Milwaukee is going to win that series. I've been thinking all night about this very thing, Carson. What it, will it look like to watch Giannis go against this Celtics defense? And when you look at... So think specifically about what uh, Boston did. Now, one wrinkle here is Boston's relying a lot on roughing up Kyrie and KD. And Kyrie and KD are both very thin. Okay, so that's the weird dynamic. You're not going to be able to rough up Giannis. He's going to do better in that specific setting. But the swarming is what troubles me. KD could not even put the ball on the floor half the time without having like two dudes swatting down on it. We talked about that earlier in the show, the way that Boston was attacking him on the catch and then finding out where he, he would they'd send Tatum to one side and then as soon as he'd pivot, he'd be another guy right in his face. That kind of thing Giannis is going to struggle with. And again, like what you're seeing a lot, like with Brooklyn, Brooklyn is desperately reliant right now on guys like Seth Curry and Patty Mills to make plays off the ball. Bruce Brown is another great example of that, right? That's where the onus is going to be on guys like Drew Holiday and on Chris Middleton. Because Boston is the same thing to Giannis that they're doing to KD. They are going to try to just completely remove him from the series. He's going to have a little bit more success in transition because he's the biggest, strongest athlete on the floor. Than, so he'll have more transition success than a KD or a, a Kyrie. He's going to have more success in off-ball pins and duck-ins, right? So like any time that he does a quick seal under the basket, there are going to be little things like that that Boston won't be able to handle. So he's going to have a few extra punches that he can throw. But the reality is, is there's also going to be punches from KD and Kyrie in this series as it progresses as shot makers. You know, like KD's not going to go 0 for 8 in the second half the whole series, right? So like Giannis doesn't have that specific punch. So I, but I do think Giannis is going to be turned into a playmaker in this series. 
And when that happens, it's going to be on guys like Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton to make shots. So obviously the Chris Middleton injury becomes super impactful on that specific decision. And then Drew Holiday has been an inconsistent playoff performer in his career. He's been great this year. But that's going to be the that's going to be the 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 conundrum. Is it going to re- require other guys to make plays? Just like we were talking about earlier, really quickly, like we were talking about earlier with the way basketball is changing, there is a ton more responsibility on your off-ball players to create, and there's a lot more traditional off-ball spot-up guys in Milwaukee. Guys like Wesley Matthews, he's not a closeout attacker. Guys like Pat Connaughton. In Grayson Allen, they're not great closeout attackers. They're not the guy. They're more of a traditional old school basketball spot up and shoot corner threes type of guys. Mm-hmm. So like it's a di- it's a completely different dynamic, and and I, I think it's a bad matchup. And and another reason why I think Boston has got the red carpet laid out for them to win this whole thing. All right. Well, another element in that dynamic playing out for the Celtics that you did touch on a bit earlier is the Devin Booker injury, and. We saw him obviously go out with the hamstring issue in Game 2. The reporting is now that he is unlikely to play in Games 3 and 4. And like you said earlier, there's always the potential that this is a lingering, potentially impactful thing. So, given that, can the Suns win the West without Devin Booker? No, not at all. No chance. There's no way they're beating Memphis or Golden State without him. This is something that I'm very concerned about for Phoenix sake. There's not even a, I would still pick the Suns to beat the Pelicans without uh, Booker, but I think it's going six or seven games. Like there, if Devin Booker doesn't play in game three and game four, which he's basically been ruled out of those games, the Pelicans are getting one of those on the strength of their home crowd and their athleticism, most likely. So it's coming back to Phoenix two two. I would expect the Phoenix Suns to be able to win game five in Phoenix and then Chris Paul game six chance to close out. I would probably pick Phoenix there. But moving forward, as we progress through this playoff run, it doesn't get any easier. And more than likely, they'll end up losing to someone like Golden State or Memphis. So this is where the hamstring thing gets tricky. So Devin Booker's dealt with a bunch of hamstring injuries in his career. Back before the Suns were really relevant, that was like his most common injury, at least from what I remember anecdotally. And like, there was that footage that went around on social media after that game. You see him pull up after trying to block Jackson Hayes on that transition run-out dunk. And he kind of slaps the ball at Chris Paul, mutters something to him. Chris Paul immediately turns to the ref and calls timeout. Walks over to the bench, sits down, slaps the hell out of the chair, and looks utterly dejected. And then at another timeout, you literally see Jay Crowder ask the question. If you're a lip reader, you hear him say, like, you pulled it? And you see Devin Booker nod. And you see Jay Crowder kind of like turn his, shake his head and walk away, right? All dejected like. And so some of this reporting around this feels overly optimistic. Again, I don't know anything other than what I've seen. But like, I just, a pulled hamstring, like Devin Booker, if he thinks he pulled his hamstring, he's going to be out a little while. It's the reality of it. Hamstrings are one of the weirdest injuries for re-injury. I, I've pulled my hamstring one time. and it was It was the year before I started playing in college. And I re-injured that thing twice before I gave it the requisite rest. Came back in one week, immediately pulled it again. Came back like two weeks later, immediately pulled it again. And I was like, I'm not going to let this happen again. So I sat out like a month and then I was fine. But like hamstring injuries are extremely finicky. And so like there's a very realistic chance. Like would you be stunned, Carson, if I told you that Devin Booker is going to be out for three weeks? And if he's out for three weeks, even if they manage to beat the Pelicans... They could be down 2-0 in a series in the next round by that point. So, like, 
Mm-hmm. And even when he comes back, there's going to be a hesitancy from Devin to push himself because he's nervous about that hamstring going again, just like you saw with James Harden in last year's playoff run. Look at how limited James Harden was basically not driving to the basket towards the end of that series because of his hamstring injury. So that it's uh, a man like I feel so bad for Suns fans because you do everything right all season long. And then this happens. I feel really bad for Devin Booker too. But at the end of the day, injuries happen. This is why like I hate when the Lakers and Suns have been trading jabs over the AD injury and the Chris Paul injury and talking shit to each other. It's like, guys, guess what? Like you got to be lucky to win. So when you win, be respectful because understand that you probably had some luck along the way. The Suns had a lot of luck last year. They faced an injured star, I think, in every single round of the playoffs. Even Giannis in the post in the finals had uh, was coming off of that hyperextended knee, so they got all the luck last year. And this year, they're on the downside of that. Then, but man, I'll tell you, if Chris Paul can somehow carry them for a month, that would be that. That would obviously, you know, this is this is the last thing I'll say about it. The Suns, I've been saying all year, are the most talented team in the league, from top to bottom. Mikael Bridges is awesome. Cam Johnson is awesome. Cam Payne's an excellent backup point guard. DeAndre Ayton is a star in the making at the center position. They have a ton of talent. So the onus is going to be on those guys. Mikael Bridges is going to have to be more aggressive as a scorer. DeAndre Ayton is going to have to be more aggressive with his face-up game and with his post-up game. There's going to be a lot of pressure on those guys to kind of carry the load because on this team, Devin Booker has been their outlet, their release valve, their guy who can create his own shot. And without him, those other guys are going to have to fill that void. I think that you touched on what to me was really the key glaring things just in terms of the structure of this team is the Suns have obviously been phenomenal, dominant two-way team, impressive depth, and such balance and such a clear identity and cohesion. And all these things, and like if you look at on-off numbers, they're still statistically a good team with Booker off the floor this year. But I completely agree with you in that You have to look to those other guys now, obviously. And I don't really like the remaining Suns personnel in terms of shot creation. Like, Bridges is phenomenal because he's an incredibly cerebral cutter and a great shooter and impacts the game in so many ways without the ball in his hands. And Aiton, obviously, is feeding off of offense created for him. And Crowder is, you know, primarily just taking catch-and-shoot threes. Like, I think that the guy they turn to for, like, actually initiating more offense might have to be, like, campaign. And... I don't feel very good about that. You know, like, I just think without Devin Booker, who is so important to greasing the wheels of the offense in so many ways as the most dynamic shot maker and, you know, certainly a top two guy just in terms of creating offense for himself and others, I just don't think they're built to actually overcome that particular loss. So I agree with you. I don't think that there is really any chance. I mean, with how the Warriors are playing right now, and I think, you know, a healthy Memphis team, there's just a gap there in terms creation that I think is really going to be too difficult to overcome if Book isn't himself or isn't out there. The campaign element is interesting. They did that a little bit in the playoffs last year. They played campaign and Chris Paul Mm -hmm. together to try to get some shot creation when Devin Booker was off the floor. I would hope, because there's been stories written about this and I believe it, like DeAndre Aiden didn't get the Joel Embiid treatment. Not and for the record, DeAndre Ayton is not Joel Embiid, but he didn't get to go to a terrible tanking team and do the stuff that Joel Embiid got to do when he was a rookie, which was basically whatever he wanted, you know. And so, yeah. what you and Mikael Bridges kind of a similar predicament. He didn't get to be Brandon Ingram with the Lakers, where he went in on a bad team and he just got to work with tons and tons of game reps, building out the offensive ends of his game, the offensive details of his game. Again, Mikael Bridges not Brandon Ingram. But what I'm saying is, is 
what you have to hope is that over these years, those guys have been working on some of that and that they'll mm-hmm. be able to unleash it when they need to. And again, I'm with you. Like they're not, it's not the strength of their games. Mikhail Bridges offense primarily comes out of attacking closeouts and in transition. Right. And then, you know, DeAndre Ayton, he'll take the occasional jab step, little, you know, face up shot or a, a, like a pin hook shot in the lane and stuff. But you have to right. hope that he has some post moves in there because the thing is, is Chris Paul with his age and his hamstring has been known to go from uh, on top from time to time. Right. What you have to, what you have to do here is, you know, Chris Paul can still do what Chris Paul does. He's been magnificent, you know, in, ga- in game one of the series in particular. What you have to hope though, is that Chris Paul, when he needs rest, when he gets fatigued, that he can throw the ball, this, the, the ball to somebody else and create shots. I know campaign like to your point can apply rim pressure and at least get that first, that first rotation started where the defense has to come over and help. And that's where the onus will be on guys like Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges to make plays. And Cam Johnson has some scoring punch as well. He might have to get into that bag a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, all of these guys have their flashes. It's just like, they're going to have to really do it by committee then. They're going to have to do it pretty darn well. And I do think campaign becomes really important in that equation if Book isn't out there or is not himself. All right. Mm -hmm. Final question we have here, Jason. Got to do a little bit of Lakers because Jay Wright, (laughs) at just 60 years old, announced today that he is stepping down from the Villanova job where he has obviously been so successful for so long. Should he come coach the Lakers? Hell no. Absolutely not. (laughs) I don't know how many times we have to see the college dude who goes pro. You know, this is not like a, you know... Nick Saban slash, you know, Bill Belichick type, like, you know, guy that's young and grinding, you know, that that's failed in other places or failed in the, in the pros at some point that's coming back into this type of environment. No, like this is a guy who's accomplished it all at the college level. The ambition is gone. And we've seen this on a bunch of different levels in NBA history where, and in the NFL, like we just saw it with, uh, um, now I'm blanking on his name, the coach of, from Ohio state, um, (laughs) it's killing Urban Meyer, thank you. I get weird with names sometimes, but uh, <laughs> Urban Meyer come going to to Miami, and then you find out that he doesn't even know who Von Miller is or whatever it was. Like, like it's one of those things where like the grind, they're not grinders, and that's the problem. Is you know, for the Lakers, they've got to find a mix of established personality that has enough cachet that he can capture LeBron and Anthony Davis's attention and respect, but at the same time, that has the ambition to grind still. And a guy who's coached in college for 21 years and has won national championships and has had all all the stuff on his resume doesn't need that. Now, from what I understand with the reporting, he's not interested. But that's an example of a guy that the Lakers need to stay a million miles away from. It's just that, like there, there was that dude who coached at Michigan and went to the Cavs for a while. Same problem. Came in, tried to run the program like a college program. All the players were super turned off by it. Walked in there like he was the big shot. NBA players, kind of like with David Blatt when he coached the Cavs. NBA players don't give a shit what you accomplished in your other gigs. They don't care what you did in Europe. They don't care what you did in college. Hell, like, like I, I've seen eye-rollish comments from, from Kyrie Irving about Steve Nash in years past. Mm-hmm. Like, And Steve Nash is one of the greatest point guards to ever play the game. So like, NBA players are, are more interested in... in they, they respect very specific types of coaches. So you've got to kind of toe that line between respect and, and ambition, if that makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree. And... Jay Wright is just such a college basketball coach, just in terms of like being a culture setter. Nova, he always develops 
players into being those really valuable, versatile third, fourth year guys. I do think he's a really good X's and O's schematic coach and gets guys to always play both ends. Like, I mean, it's really hard to find Nova basketball players who don't kind of overperform expectations in the NBA because he just churns out like smart, good, versatile basketball players. But he does not feel like an NBA coach to me. Like, he's a guy who owns a program for two decades, run things how he wants to, isn't going to get the highest profile recruits, but is going to make those guys what they are in a college basketball context. And I agree with you in that it just doesn't feel like it would translate to the NBA. And you certainly do not want a guy cashing checks and, you know, just clocking in and out, especially certainly not for the Lakers, given where things are at right now. So I agree. Yeah, the type of the type of coach that would succeed making that transition is kind of like the Brad Stevens archetype. Like the guy right. that is still young mm-hmm. and is ambitious, but also steps in to coach a young team. That's the mm-hmm. the key difference there. Like there were some vets right. on that Boston team, but they were like guys like Al Horford that were extraordinarily respectful and professional, you know, or like a role player that doesn't really have the cachet to speak up like a Marcus Morris, right? Like for the most Mm -hmm. part, it was Marcus Mark, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, guys that were very deferential to Brad Stevens because of the fact that, you know, he like they, they don't have the egos yet from being in the league long enough to be like, I don't give a crap about this, this college coach that's coming in the room. So I'm not saying it can't Mm -hmm. be done at all, but He's certainly not the type of archetype who would. All right, guys, that is all we have for tonight. I sincerely appreciate your guys' support, like always. A wild show. There's still a ton to get into on both of these games, but with the Bucks game and with that Sixers game, I didn't get to watch the whole thing because I was so glued into that uh, that Celtics-Nets game. So I need to go back and watch some film. And tomorrow night, we will get into further detail on these series as some of the X's and O's stuff. As always, I appreciate your support. We will be back after the final buzzer of the last game tomorrow night, and I will see you guys then. The Volume. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Hey, it's Kevin Hart. In this basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back all my game tickets. Plus, tickets for 23 of my biggest fans to cheer me on while I enjoy the game. Find your seat. I appreciate the support, people. Eat that pretzel. This will never get old. Use more napkins. Okay, this is starting to get old. Say the tag one. Cash back like a pro with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase, make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.